The following audio is from The Well. We are a church that is committed to gospel growth, family formation, and missional engagement in Hastings, Nebraska. More information about The Well can be found at www.thewellhastings.com. We hope the message you are about to hear will spur you on to growing in the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be formed as a follower of Jesus, and to be engaged in the mission of Jesus to seek and to save the lost within the yard of hell. Acts 17, verses 1 through 15. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis, what a strange name. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, taking some of the wicked men of the rabble. They formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. When they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So this is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Amen. Let me pray. Father, um, Lord, we uh, come before you this morning um, with the smell of food in the air. And, and no joke, Father, we need you to give us an appetite for your word and a hunger for your word. We know that our uh, desires can run rampant sometimes just like hunger. And so, uh, God, help us to hunger for the truth of your word and to hunger to be confronted with your word and to um, desire to be obedient to your word. Father, also help me to preach your word faithfully. Um, These are your sheep. This is your church. These are your people, not mine. And so, Father, help me to speak only what you would speak. Um, Trust you to do this. In Jesus' name, everybody said? Amen. Amen. As you study the book of Acts, uh, you'll find that the movement of the story uh, begins in Jerusalem, moves out through Judea, Samaria, and then kind of moves towards the ends of the earth. Um, And that is a a direct pattern that uh, was predicted by Jesus in terms of the Great Commission. Uh, Early on in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8, where he says, you'll be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And so the movement of the book of Acts is just like that. But you'll also notice in the movement of the story that uh, there are a number of different characters. Uh, Primarily, uh, you're going to read a lot about Peter in the first number of chapters. And then right around chapter 9 or so, it starts to shift. And Paul kind of takes center stage. Now obviously, these aren't the heroes of the story because there's only one hero of the story. That's God himself. That's Jesus, right? These human um, players, um, characters, 
in the Bible are meant to point us to Jesus. Sometimes it is done through men like Paul, or you go to the Old Testament, men like David. You see them in all of their um, good points, and you see them in all of their failures as well. And God uses humans to point others to himself. Now, the Apostle Paul is the one that we've really been focusing on, and the scriptures have been focusing on here in Acts, uh, like I said, since roughly chapter 9 or so. Apostle Paul, in my opinion, is by far one of the most inspiring characters in the New Testament, outside of Jesus himself, of course. Um, through the Apostle Paul, um, God did what we typically think is impossible, right? That's been a, a reoccurring theme as we've studied this. Think about some of the things that he did in and through the Apostle Paul. He took what we've called a national terrorist, turned him into a worldwide evangelist. God planted upwards of 13 churches or more throughout the Middle East and modern-day Europe. Through the Apostle Paul, he also wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. That's fascinating. Now, alongside some of those amazing achievements, the Apostle Paul also faced severe hardship, severe persecution, heart-wrenching loneliness, physical-emotional trauma, loss of close friends, extreme depression, unbelievable opposition when you do the study. And ultimately, at the end of all of that, what was his reward here on earth? Beheaded for his ministry, right? And then, as I saw uh, on a meme, I think, on Facebook or something recently, Paul walked into heaven to the cheers of people that he murdered. Whew. Think about that. This great apostle, I uh, once said, that it is Christ whom we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So for this reason, for that reason, he says, because I want to proclaim and warn, teach, present everyone mature in Christ, because of that reason I toil, he says, struggling with all his energy, God's energy, that he powerfully works in me. That's Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 through 29, for reference. See, Paul was a man who was radically transformed. But he was also a man who was dead set on the calling to be a disciple who picked up his cross daily, not only in death to his own sinful impulses, but also for the sake of preaching the gospel to the lost. That's the Apostle Paul. And on top of all that, you may not know this, or maybe you do, the Apostle Paul also had the audacity at some point in Scripture, and I say audacity, a better word would be humility. It may not sound humility, but if you really think about what he says here in a moment, there is a lot of humility in what he's saying. I'm just going to say he had the audacity to challenge his listeners, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, to be imitators of me as I am of Christ. I say humility because if you're going to imitate Christ, then you're going to endure hardship. You're going to run headlong towards hardship, sacrifice, on behalf of others. So for Paul to say, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That's pretty audacious and humility at the same time. He literally challenged people to be just like him to the extent that he was just like Jesus. So when I imagine the Apostle Paul, I imagine him saying along with one of my heroes of the faith, C.T. Studd, I imagine Paul would say, come and be like me, even though there's some people who want to live within the comforts of the sound of a church or chapel bell, I don't think Paul was interested in comfort or safety. Come and imitate me because I'm running a rescue mission within a yard of hell. I think, I think Paul would latch onto that with C.T. Studd. I can't wait to grab coffee or a drink with Paul and C.T. Studd in heaven. That will be a moment that you get to live out for eternity. But furthermore, he expected, Paul did, he expected his disciples to imitate his life and ministry. I don't think you hear a lot of pastors today saying this, that you should imitate me as I follow Jesus. 
years later, while writing to the Thessalonians, whom we're going to see him ministering to today in the first portion of our text, in, in, a, in a summary uh, that, that I would lay forward that also is connected to Romans, I would say Paul basically says, hey guys, don't get all caught up sitting around waiting for Jesus in your lawn chairs with your shades on, thinking you ain't got to do nothing while you complain about how bad the world is. Get to work giving your life away as an act of sacrificial worship on behalf of the ministry of the gospel. That's a summary message of the themes of the books of First and Second Thessalonians. Again, connection to Romans 12 as well. Paul was known to say some pretty hard things. And I'm sure some of you might wonder why I get so forceful sometimes with my words, um, especially in regards to the Western church, in light of the description of the church that we see here in the book of Acts. And I, I would submit to you, for me, um, the reason that I get so passionate sometimes, the reason that I get so forceful at times in what I say, um, is because of what I see here in men like the Apostle Paul. When I think about a vision for a church family and for believers all across the Western Front, I desperately want to see a church that is full of men and women who hear and obey the call to imitate me as I imitate Christ. Why? So that we might toil together, work together, struggling with all of God's energy to make disciples who proclaim the gospel to everyone. Why? So that we might then present everyone mature in Christ. When I look at the Apostle Paul, I see a man who was literally a man who turned the world upside down through the preaching of the gospel. And in fact, in verse 6, and we're going to look at it in more depth later, in verse 6, that's the major accusation in this portion of the passage. These guys are turning the world upside down. Question. Would you be known as a person who is turning the world upside down because of your pursuit of Jesus? Would the Western church even be thought of in the same category as a community of people who are turning the world upside down because of their passion for the gospel? Now, if we're going to become disciples who, just like Paul, are doing just that, the question you've got to ask is, well, what could we imitate from Paul's life and ministry, right? That'd be a low-hanging question. What could we imitate? So take a look at Paul in our text Verses 1 through 3, what do we see him doing? He's preaching the word. That's what he's doing. He's preaching the word. Now, if you go back for context, in our previous study of Acts 16, 11 through 40 last week, what we saw is you saw Paul and his crew planting a church in the, this little city of Philippi, right? That's where you get the book of Philippians later. Planting a church in Philippi. He's getting beaten. He's getting tossed in jail for their ministry, right? All of them. They're getting chased out of town by some low-life posers. Then amidst the hardship, what does God do? God, God plants a church, starts off with a, a core group of wealthy businesswomen, what I called last week an ex-snake girl who became the saved girl, cop from the local prison, probably a few ex-cons at the same time. If you read church planting books, they don't tell you to start with those people. Moral of the story is this. If you don't shed some literal blood, sweat, and tears because of your following Jesus, because of your ministry, I would say you probably aren't going to see very many miraculous results. We had this conversation for a few moments in our men's group this last week about why we don't see miracles so often in the Western church today true, legitimate, authentic ones. And I think that's one of the reasons. I think Westerners are not willing to shed literal blood, sweat, and tears to follow Jesus. Think about this. If comfort is what you seek, then mundane is what you're going to get. If safety is what you prefer in your spiritual life, then your relationship with a dangerous God is going to be boring at best. 
If minimal sacrifice is what your heart desires as it pertains to time, talent, and treasure, if you're all about minimal sacrifice in that, then it's going to be impossible to draw close to the Savior who gave everything on your behalf. If pain-free is what you want, if, if, if running from pain, hiding from pain, shielding yourself from pain, if that's what you want, then you won't be free. Bondage is what you're going to get because you'll be in bondage to shielding yourself, protecting yourself, and running from a painful life. If half in is what you like, then a divided heart is what you're going to have because you'll be half in and half out. Your heart will never be fully committed. If human reasoning rules the way that you make decisions, invest time, invest talent, invest treasure, if human reasoning is your go-to, then say goodbye to God's protection, his protective presence in your life. See, the Apostle Paul, you do a case study on this man, he was a man who did shed literal blood, sweat, and tears. And what did he witness? He witnessed literal miracles happening on the daily. There was nothing mundane about the Apostle Paul because comfort was not his God. His relationship with God was vibrant and alive because he didn't settle for the tempting lure of personal safety away from pain. What Paul did was he continuously drew close to the crucified, risen, and returning Jesus. And the result of that is that he gave his entire life for the cause of the gospel. Think about this. A good chunk of the books that he wrote, letters he wrote, he wrote in chains, in prison, for his faith. And even when he was in chains, he knew that he was truly free. Because he knew that a pain-filled life prepared him to live and die like Christ. Paul's heart, I believe, was so fully committed to the cause of knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. That in the end of the day, there was no division in his heart. He was not half in and half out. He was all in. And while human reasoning uh, is a good thing. Because reason is very important. God gave our ability to reason as humans to us. You look back through the philosophers who influenced church theology throughout the ages. All of them had something to say about human reason and its place in priority as we do theology. And those who rose human reasoning above the miraculous and unexplainable at times directives of God wound up elevating human reason above the word of God. Paul did not do this. I think he's a very reasonable man. I think he was a man who had great intellect and a great ability to speak in ways and think in ways that just blows the doors off of us. You read his writings, I think you pick that up. The man could reason with some of the best, just logical thinker. But Paul did not allow that good thing of human reason, the gift of God that God gives us, didn't allow that gift to become an idol whereby it would trump God's word or God himself. At the end of the day, Paul's love for the word of God, knowing the word, preaching the word, this turned him into a man who uh, one author says was fully alive with interest compounded that's a description of the apostle paul fully alive interest compounded We're talking this week about goals and being goal oriented and I, i'm a type a personality if you haven't figured that out all right i love to accomplish and achieve that's why church planning has been so sanctifying for me it's been the slowest thing i've ever done it's good for me Apostle Paul and I think 
Apostle Paul, if I could sit down with him, I think we could connect on some of that level. Like, man, let's get her done. Right? He was fully alive with interest compounded. That same author said this. He said, there is an instinctive fear in most of us. Think about this fear that most of us have. There is an instinctive fear in most of us to travel with our energies at full throttle. Now, the way he used his words is interesting, but the idea there is we're afraid to give God everything. We're afraid to go after it full throttle. We're afraid to jump all the way in. He says we prefer, for the sake of safety, to take life in small and dainty doses. The small and dainty doses that we can control. So, Paul was a full throttle man. Not like the energy drink, but he was a full throttle man. He didn't allow comfort or safety or control or acceptance to dominate his calling to know the word of God and to preach the word of God. He was a full throttle preacher. He loved screaming down the highway with a throttle twisted wide open. Though it may appear as though he fled Philippi in last week's study, I don't think he fled at all. I think he strategically followed the spirit of our Heavenly Father into the city of Thessalonica, where we find him in the first couple of verses. And he didn't go there to take a break from all his suffering. He went there to preach the word some more. So that people could meet the same crucified, risen, and returning Savior. He knew Jesus so well, and he wanted others to know him as well. In Thessalonica, the text tells us that he spent some time reasoning with them, explaining things to them, proving things to them, especially that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ, or the Messiah. Bottom line here, Paul preached. Paul was totally sold out for the preaching of the Bible in a way that pointed everyone to Christ crucified, risen, and returning. There are churches today who are not committed to the preaching of the word. They're committed to blessing your pets on a Sunday. Right here in Hastings. Makes no sense. Or they're committed to childish things. Skits movie clips, whatever it may be to get your attention and entertain you a little bit more. I refuse to do that. So this kind of radical commitment, I think, that we see in the Apostle Paul, it is certain to shake things up a bit, right? If you think about it. Can you imagine? And just, think of, just put your imagination cap on for a minute. If only half of the so-called believers in the Western church today, you can apply that however you want, but if only half, 50%, Either this side or that side. It's not quite even, but to make it really personal for us, okay, because I can't just keep it all like general, like let's think about everybody outside these walls because we're pretty good. Let's not do that. Let's think about it this way. If only half of the so-called believers within these walls this morning, if only half had the same tenacity that the Apostle Paul had when it comes to preaching the Word of God, what do you think would happen? Oh, we'd turn this city upside down. Not because the preacher's so great. Not because the worship team knocked out of the park. Not because the heat and cooling is just right. Not because the lighting gets turned on and off just right. Not because there's enough smoke on it. None of that. None of that. We would turn this city upside down because we'd be preaching the gospel. I think the church today, especially in the West, has lost our hope in the power of the gospel to save. Which leads us to the second thing we see in really kind of the main thought for the text, right? And the main thought that we're really honing on today, you look at verses 4 through 9, what happens? Paul literally turns the world upside down. That's what he gets accused of. And I'm thinking, you know what? I think the accusation was right. Maybe not in the way his accusers meant it, but I think he is turning the world upside down literally. Paul's tenacious commitment to preaching the word of God no matter the cost this produced, I think, some amazing re results, some miraculous results. 
but also produced some painful results. Again, without risk, there is no reward. Agreed? Without pain, there is no what? Gain. Two of you got it. The rest of you are going to hell. All right. Just making sure you're, no, you're not going to hell. Chill out. Jeez Louise. Just making sure you're awake. I only heard two people. Let me try again. Without pain, there is no what? <laughs> That's better. There was three. No. Hey, guys, here's the thing. The church is not the social club, right? That's the other problem, isn't it? The church is not a social club, but we have turned it into a social club. It's actually designed to be a military unit designed for battle. There's a big difference. Victory does not come without some loss. Agreed? And it always comes at great cost. Agreed? See, if the Western church, I think, could catch a little bit of that vision, I think the Western church would be accused of turning the world upside down. As the Apostle Paul preached the word of God in Thessalonica, Luke tells us that many people become believers, verse 4. But then he also explains that as the victory of people becoming new believers is actually taking place, some religious folks get jealous. They gather up a horde of low-life street thugs. They attempt to set the city in an uproar, according to verse 5. Since Paul and his crew either had already moved on, or since they're somewhere else, they're not in the, the house that this, this mob goes to. <clears throat> These low-life thugs, what do they do? They drag out some of the other believers, the new believers, and they drag them down to the public courthouse, and they're yelling, they're screaming, and they're accusing them. And they say, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And, they add this other one to it, they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another king, Jesus. Which is crazy because just through the sinful acts of this mob, the mob actually proclaims the truth that there is another king and his name is Jesus. So I, I love that. I can see Luke writing this with a little glimmer in his eye like, man, those fools don't even know what they just did. <laughs> in response to this, the authorities, verses 8 through 9, they basically exact some really heavy financial fines on the believers and their hopes is that it's kind of a twist in the side to stop talking. We find you, we keep a hold of this money, keep your mouth shut, we might give it back. A little bit of bribery hoping to curb the ministry that's taking place. Now, now, again, the accusations against these new believers were definitely exaggerated in many ways. Um, I don't think these new believers were advocating for some kind of civil disobedience against Caesar, okay? I mean, look, the entire church was like up in arms a few years ago, like, let's do civil disobedience because of masks. Seriously? That's the gospel we thought we were going to stand on. How weak. Don't you think? Like, I don't give a rip. I'm pretty sure the mass might not have worked either. We'll just land in the gray space. I'll stay there. <laughs> okay, I'll get off that. So I don't think they were advocating for any kind of civil disobedience. But they were turning the world upside down through their preaching of the gospel. And here's the reality. The gospel will always appear to, appear to be upside down, backwards, to, to a culture that is truly upside down because of the fall, because of sin, because of brokenness. So the gospel is meant to take what was broken in the fall at the garden, and it was meant to restore things into this right-side-up place. It's meant to take broken people and make us right and whole again, which to the rest of the broken world is always going to look upside down. It's going to lead to that impression. So here's the thing. I think if we're lucky today, I think we're lucky today if the church is even viewed as a mere nuisance in our culture. I think we are typically viewed as hypocritical, fundamental, fanatical, political, and just another social club that exists to do what? In most cases, to amass great wealth for private jets, large homes, and lavish lifestyles. Now, all I'm going to say is I'm not trying to be too hard on us for the sake of being hard. I'm just letting you know, in my life, I personally spend an awful lot of time around people who are not believers. I love both worlds. I love being with God's people on Sunday mornings, 
But I love the Saturday nights where we're out in some just dirtiest and grimiest of places of lost people. And I get to hear. Because in the process of building relationships and earning trust and asking questions, that's what I hear. That's the way we're viewed, at least here in Nebraska. Pretty sure it's a lot larger than Nebraska when you think about the way the lost world views the church and the people in it. Let me use these words again. They sting, they hurt. Hypocritical, fundamental, fanatical, political, and a social club that exists to amass great wealth. They're always asking for money. If you look what their preachers drive, I do drive a decent truck. It is true. So I think it's always encouraging when a church flips those notions on their head through a radical commitment to the gospel. Think about this. How awesome would it be if the church in the West actually rose up with the power of the gospel through the preaching of the word and then actually gained the reputation of being a people who are turning the world upside down? How cool would that be to be a part of that? See, with that kind of reputation, there would definitely be people who would listen and receive the message of the gospel with eagerness, which is exactly what we see taking place next, right? Verses 10 through 12, the Bereans receive the word with eagerness. Right? So things are heating up in Thessalonica. That's what's going on, right? Back to the story. Things are heating up there, and Luke tells us that as those things are heating up in Thessalonica, the brothers, verse 10, immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And upon their arrival, they went right into the synagogue, which is the local gathering of Jewish believers. And this is where Paul immediately begins preaching the gospel in and through God's word. And as a result, Luke tells us many people come to believe in Jesus as they, listen, look at this, received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so, to see if what Paul was preaching was true. Now, I don't want us to miss this. Don't miss the fact that even though Paul got run out of town in Philippi last week, and even though he got run out of town yesterday in Thessalonica, He never wavered in his commitment to turn the world upside down through the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the word of God. When opposition arose, he didn't look for a new social club to get comfortable in. He didn't turn back and go some other direction. He didn't trim back his sacrifice. And he certainly didn't begin to rely more on human reasoning or, worse, pop culture strategies. Building big businesses? He didn't do that either. He remained fully committed to knowing Jesus through the study of the Bible and then making Jesus known through the preaching of the Bible. And the beautiful part here, the beautiful part of what Luke tells us is that his Berean listeners received the word with eagerness and they tested Paul's preaching by checking the word of God for themselves. And one of my original visions for us as a church, when we began planting over 11 years ago in our living room, Christy and I, four people who I'm not sure if they were believers, not sure if they're believers today either. Um, There were six of us. We called it the core six for a long time. I know that one's sitting in prison, right? Yeah, I don't even need to go through it, but... Not sure. I just know that when we first started 11 years ago in our living room with that core group of us, six, our vision was that we we wanted to be a church that was kind of like the woman at the well and her friends from town. That's why we called it the well. We wanted to be a church that that, that would be a church where people uh, who were far from God would come and hear from Jesus for themselves. I used to use this phrase, still use it every once in a while, like the last thing you need to hear is from Joe. What you need to hear from is Jesus. Now, you do need to hear from Joe or whatever other preachers we put in the pulpit because preaching is important. But the hope is that you start hearing from Jesus through the pulpit and then through each other. That was the vision is that people who were far from God would come and hear from Jesus for themselves and then turn around from that. And I'd just be like, oh, look, I had a great experience. I love this church. Wow. 
right? And it was like my own personal little holy huddle, and we're all good, and I get to see them every week. And, uh, <laughs> too much testosterone. <laughs> Our hope is that people would hear from Jesus and go, oh my gosh, I know people who are just like me. I know people who are just like me, and they need to hear from Jesus too because he set me free. See, the difference between a social club and people who are on fire because of the gospel is just that. A social club is like, hey, let's all get together and just have fun. I just love them. It's so good. That's a social club. People who are on fire for the gospel are like, yo, I heard from Jesus. He radically shaped my life, transformed my life. He's transforming my life even today. And I got to tell other people about him. That's what we hoped. Now, the only prerequisite to seeing that kind of vision come to life, what do you think it is? Just think about it. What do you think the prerequisite is for seeing that kind of a vision actually, like, just come alive in front of you? If you're looking at the text with me, we have some clues. I think the prerequisite is this. There needs to be people who hear the word of God with eagerness. Test the word of God carefully. Obey the word of God faithfully. And then preach the word of God courageously. Can I say it again? Because I think it all hinges upon itself. I think the prerequisite to seeing a church come fully alive with that kind of a vision is simply this. You need people who hear the word of God with eagerness, test the word of God carefully, obey the word of God faithfully, preach the word of God courageously. So here's the thing. Hearing the word of God will have absolutely no impact on your life if you are not eager to hear it. Think about it. Why would you show up a couple times per week, or for some, a couple times a month, or for some, a couple times a year, if you're not eager to hear the word of God? So I would submit that this core thing is the reason why so many people are so inconsistent with their participation in a local church. They're not eager to hear the word of God preached. Or, you might say, well, in our postmodern times, I'm able to get preaching of the word of God anywhere. That's true if you like to eat fast food all day. And if you do that, it'll kill you eventually. You can't live on preaching from podcasts and things like that and think that you are being spiritually fed because that preacher doesn't know you and the shepherd is called to know his sheep and guide and shepherd under the hand of the master shepherd that kind of preaching is important yes i listen to podcasts all the time <coughs> i have very close friends either in this church and outside as well who preach to me every time i see them i need that i need personal preaching not impersonal preaching See, testing the word that you hear preached, think about that aspect, the testing of the word part. Testing the word that you hear preached, that has to be done carefully too. Because in so doing, you have to resist the enemy's voice who seeks to stop you from hearing. Think about faithfulness to the word that you actually hear preached. Are you faithful to the word you hear preached? Well, I'll tell you, if you want to measure it, rather than just going, oh yeah, I'm pretty faithful, I think so. Or, or you're on there saying, no, I'm never faithful to it. You just you kind of want to live in a, like, woe is me, Eeyore, right? Oh, I guess. Okay. Faithfulness to the word you hear preached, here's how you measure it. Measure it by your actual obedience to it. Because here's the thing. You can only give what you've, been, what you've received, right? So if you haven't received God's word, lived by it, obeyed it, You can't give it away, right? So now we come back to the issue with the Western church. That's why I think the church of the West is so absolutely impotent at turning the world upside down through the preaching of the word. Why? Because, as Paul wrote later, we people love to have our ears tickled rather than being challenged to obey the word and then continue to preach the word that we are actually eager to hear and test and obey. With that said, it's also important to have a little encouragement, right? I, I was really encouraged 
um, over the last 11 years as I look back and I thought about what has God given us in our little church family? I think, and, and there was a guy in our men's group last week who's very fresh and very new to our church, not here today because he's got a Thanksgiving thing he was going to. Dude actually texted me to let me know he's not going to be here. I don't know if you all would understand how encouraging that is, but let's think about it this way. If you invite somebody over to your house and you're expecting them to show up, as you have prepared, you see you've labored hours to prepare a major meal for them, right? And then they just don't show. And you don't hear from them for weeks, months on end. You're like, man, like, how did I offend them somehow? Like, you wonder that, right? Same goes for preachers. Okay? Preachers labor hours to put a good meal on the table. And you just, you just don't see people. They're just gone. No call, no text. Text them, no answer. Ghosted. Like, I would submit to you teenagers that that's worse than being ghosted by your high school crush, okay? Just saying. You've got to apply it to the teenagers too, right? Okay. So I thought about the church over the last 11 years, and I think, again, back to the guy who's fresh here, two weeks, texting me he's not going to be here this week. He said in our men's group this last week, and he goes, hey, one of the things that I noticed right away is you guys in this men's group, you guys know your Bibles, he was like, you guys are like, you guys are beasts with the word. And I hadn't noticed that in a long time. There was probably a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago or so, where I was lamenting that I was like, man, I'm only seeing three of the 20 or so men in our church in men's Bible study. What the heck is going on? Like, you seriously can't get in your car and drive a little bit to go study the Bible with your brothers? What's wrong with you? That's, that's what's going on in my head, right? God graciously, over the last year and a half as we honed in on that, has filled that room with some really good men. And, and according to this guy who's really fresh and new, he's like, man, I just walked into a room of some beastie theological guys who are studying God's word and know it. I thought that was a great compliment from outside eyes. And it helped me walk away going, man, God, you're, you're doing it. Even though I get frustrated because there's some faces I'm like, you should be there. Why aren't you there? Or, you know, home on your couch with your kids and your wife when you should be here with the other guys. You get six other nights of the week to do that. Right? I don't get paid very well to do this, and I'm here. Those are the thoughts that go through my head. The crazy thing is the Apostle Paul could pull the same cards with his disciples and say, yo, I ain't even drawing pay from you. <laughs> I love that about the Apostle Paul. So I am encouraged that God, I think, seems to have filled this church a lot of people who are eager to hear the word, quick to test the word, ready to obey the word, excited to preach the word. I would also say um, that I was encouraged over this last week in the number of phone calls, text messages I received from last week's hour and seven minute long sermon. Oh. Hey, that was just an oversight, seriously. I'm not apologizing. I'm just letting you know. <laughs> I ain't apologizing. I apologize enough. And people are like, stop apologizing. I'm not going to do that. Simply saying, I was really encouraged from a number of people that, hey, gave me a call and said, you know what, I needed to hear that. I heard it. It hurt. It was hard. I tested what you said. It's faithful. It's right. It's true. We're making some adjustments in repentance. Multiple. Those are some of the most encouraging text messages and phone calls a pastor can get. Because most pastors live week to week going, did, did I, my people even hear me? I see no fruit, I see no evidence, I see no change. So for me, thank you for the gift. Um, it, it's far more important than what that does for me emotionally. What's more important, like I said last week, is that I, I, I'm looking at a small group of people who are like, yeah, I think, and God's word does say that. I want to be obedient to God. I, wa I want to walk in the freedom of knowing God well. And that's encouraging. Now, if you're not in that group of people, I'm not saying if you're not in the group of people that texted me, I'm not saying that. But if you're not in the group of people who are like, yeah, you really received that and I need to do some changing. If you're not in that group of people um, actively engaged in that, eagerly hearing the word of God, being, be forewarned, okay? Here's my warning. If you're in that other side, be forewarned. you probably living in bondage right now. You're probably living in prison. you got shackles on. You turn the deaf ear to the preaching of the word. You are in bondage to your love of comfort or safety or acceptance or control or a whole host of other idols that would creep in so easily. And obviously the only reason I would say that is not because I hate somebody living in that place. Right? That wouldn't make any sense. I would say that because I don't want anybody to live in that place. Are you eager to hear the word? Are you carefully testing the word that you hear preached? 
Are you faithfully striving to live obediently to the word you hear? And are you courageously preaching the word you received? We're going to come back to that again. I'm just going to drop those questions out there for you. Because if so, here's the thing. You never know where your journey is going to lead next, right? You never know where it's going to take you. And that's the last thing we see in the text. Paul winds up in this little town called Athens. It's not so little. We're going to go there next week. It is one of the most famous dialogues in all of Scripture, especially with the Apostle Paul. So next week, can't wait for this text personally. Um, That's where Paul winds up, verses 13 through 15. When you reach a point in your relationship with Jesus, when you reach a point in, in his calling upon your life where you get to this place where you're fully committed, you're not half in, half out, running scared, doing whatever, you're all in no matter what happens. When you're in that place, you want to know him through the study of his word, you want to obey him eagerly, you want to hear his word preached, you, you just hunger for that. You reach that place, when you want to make him known to everybody you come across, No matter what the obstacle is in front of you, no matter what the consequence, when you arrive at that place, you might be surprised to see where you wind up at. In Paul's case, his tenacious commitment to the word of God results in his enemies from Thessalonica following into Berea. That just drives me batty, okay? I'm thinking my ministry may not be edgy enough because I don't think my enemies have followed me here yet, although some of us have talked. Like if those guys that did that thing that I talked about last week, y'all, what if they showed up here some something? What are we going to do? I'm going to preach. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> well, that's what we're going to The rest of you can keep an eye on people. <laughs> but I've never had my enemies follow me into my preaching place yet that I know of. In this case, they follow Paul to Berea because they heard that the word of God was being proclaimed by Paul to Berea, verse 13. So what do they do? They show up there in Berea. Text tells us, Luke tells us, they start agitating and stirring up the crowd, which then leads to Paul and his crew getting whisked away to the city of Athens. And this is where Paul's going to continue preaching the word some more. And like I said, one of his most famous dialogues on a place called Mars Hill. And the bottom line in all of this, in this last part of the text, is this. You you never know where you're going to wind up if you become radically committed to the word of God. You become radically committed to the gospel. You never know where you're going to end up. You might wind up leading a relative to Jesus, or might I say leading at least one person to Jesus because most quote-unquote Christians have never led somebody to Jesus because they want their pastor to do it instead. You might actually get there, leading somebody to Jesus. You might start a home Bible study. You might begin discipling a couple new believers. You might lay aside your fear of people and replace it with a genuine concern and love for people who are living within a yard of hell. Never know. You might become a missionary to a third world country. You might become a church planner somewhere in rural Nebraska, right? You never know. You get sold out for the Jesus who was sold out for you to the extent that he gave everything he had for you. When you, when you wrestle with that, and it actually seeps down here, you never know where you end up. Conclusion. Um, by my count... The church in Philippi gets planted, right? Over the last couple of weeks. <clears throat> church in Thessalonica gets planted. Church in Berea gets planted. Now the church in Athens is right on the cusp of being planted. Why? Because Paul had a commitment. And his commitment was to know Jesus through the eager study of his word. I believe Paul was sold out for obeying Jesus as the word was preached. I think Paul was definitely all in on proclaiming and preaching the word of Jesus. So simply stated, turning the world upside down, I think, is rooted in a relentless commitment to the word of God. And that commitment literally took Paul to the edges of hell and back in his mission to know God, to make him known among the lost. Once again, it's the same man who said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so my closing question for us is this. I'm going to come back to this question minute ago that was asking are you actually committed to turning the world upside down for jesus are you like is is that what people would say about you is that what your friend crowd says do they do they know like that dude's so on fire for jesus that there ain't nothing stopping him now the answer to that question goes back to the other question i asked about being eager to hear god's word faithfully obeying it testing it and then preaching it 
So the answer to the first question, are you committed to turning the world upside down for Jesus? And what other people say that about you? Requires that you spend some time with your heavenly father in the shadow of a bloody cross where Jesus poured out his blood for you. His body was broken for you. Requires time spent in the doorway of an empty tomb where he left the tomb empty and he said, this victory is yours if you want it. Requires you spending some time thinking about the hope of heaven, this promise that Jesus is coming back for you. When you think about the gospel in that nutshell of a form, and you go, you know, am I eager to hear God's word? Am, am I committed to testing the word? Do I, do I really want to obey the word when it gets preached? And am I bold enough to preach the word? When you start thinking about those questions, and you start responding to the spirit of God as he gets after you, you start walking in repentance, which means turning away from, then what happens is the Spirit of God, you draw closer to your Father. And that Father in heaven says, hey, you know what, you did jack it up. You've been jacking it up since the day you said yes to me. You thought it was all about you, and it really wasn't. It's actually all about me. Come here, let me help you fix it. When you draw close to that Father through that act of repentance, I'll tell you what he's going to do. He's going to fill you even more with his Spirit, and you would be a world changer. You would be somebody who's radically wanting to turn that world upside down. That's how you'll be known. But it starts by spending time at that cross, doorway that empty tomb, holding on to the home, hope of heaven, and evaluating your ability and desire and eagerness to hear the word, test the word, obey the word, and preach the word. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. Pray, Lord God, that you be with us as we close. God, we love you. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen.